welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. Uh, before we start, though, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for him writers. Thank you that you directed men and women of God to write the words we just sing. Lord, may the world see that we cannot follow you, live for you, love you on our own. That is only through Christ. Only through what he has accomplished on our behalf and only through your love for us that we are even here this morning with any desire to hear from you. Lord, may you be glorified through our lives. May you change us today through your word. Help us, Father. We need the Spirit of God to take these words from you and to pierce into the depths of our hearts. We cannot do it. Help us, Father. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would see for the first time the beauty of the cross, the beauty of what you're, you are accomplishing in the earth, and that they would bow the knee to you. Would you do this for your glory and your name, sir? In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to the book, uh, to the letter of 1 Timothy. For the next several months, my hope is to walk with you through this letter, written to a young man named Timothy, for the upbuilding of the Church of God. Timothy was converted to Christianity at a young age, and then traveled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys for several years. It is evident that Paul has a very close relationship with Timothy, like a father to a son. Although Timothy is a younger man, probably only in his 30s, and on occasion he's actually fearful to stand against false teachers and maybe even persecution, Timothy has proven himself at this point to be a faithful partner in the gospel, and Paul writes to encourage him in his leadership in Ephesus. There's much to be discovered in this short letter. We will see the glory of God put on display as Timothy is commissioned by Paul to combat false teachers, guard the true gospel, correct the proud, establish qualified elders and deacons, and fight the good fight of the faith. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, at the center of the letter, Paul gives his general purpose for writing this letter to Timothy. In verse 4, it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the true. 
This will be the focus of what Paul writes to Timothy. How to live as the church of the living God. Always holding high his truth. But Paul begins his letter with an introduction. And we look together at chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul here reminds Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and all future readers that the words that follow are written by an apostle. One who had been commissioned and sent out by Christ himself. In fact, Paul says his authority is by the command of God. There are some people today who mistakenly claim the same title and authority of one of the original apostles. But I want to make it clear, to do so is a mistake. The apostles in the New Testament are given a special task and unique authority. As eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, they were to lay down the foundation of the church and to be God's chosen instruments through which the New Testament is given. As with all the scriptures, this letter is not the mere musings of an old man. These words are breathed out by God for the glory of his name and the good of his people. To reject or ignore these words is to reject and ignore God. Accepting and living out these words is to receive further grace, mercy, and peace from God, Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is our hope. With this in mind, Paul begins his commission to Timothy with a charge to guard the gospel. Let's look first at verses 3 through 7 together. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain peoples, not persons, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In these verses, Paul is reminding Timothy of his duty to stop false teaching from spreading in the church. He's not referring to the idolatry and worship of false gods that is going on around him in the city of Ephesus. That's not his focus. He is specifically addressing any different doctrine, teaching, that has crept into the church. Certain people were devoting their time and energy to myths. And what he says is endless genealogies that were promoting nothing but speculation. 
In verses 6 and 7, the catalyst of all this confusion and different doctrine becomes clear. Skip down there. It says these men, in verse 6, have wandered into vain discussion. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things of which they make confident. The law Paul is referring to and that these men were wrongly teaching is generally speaking the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, with a specific emphasis on the laws given to Israel through Moses. From Exodus straight through Deuteronomy, there are estimated to be 613 Old Testament laws that were given to Israel. These laws were given to set Israel apart from the wickedness of the nations around them, to give them a glimpse of how righteous and good God is, and ultimately to show them their need for God to give them a way of escaping His wrath against sin. Because God knew that Israel could never perfectly keep His laws, He gave them the <coughs> sacrificial system so that through animal sacrifices they would have a way to have their sins temporarily covered in God's wrath against sin withheld for a time. But no one in the Old Testament was ever saved by trying to keep all the laws or sacrificing animals at the temple. Amen. Salvation from the wrath of God on sinful man has always been through sincere faith in God and His provision of forgiveness and salvation. However, by attempting to keep the Old Testament laws and sacrificial systems, sinful man could have a glimpse of what it would be like to dwell with God, to be at peace with God. But there was a problem. Mankind on his own does not really want God and his way. Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God, no one loves God on his own. No human being is able to keep God's law, and the spilling of, of the blood of animals could never wash away the sins of man. We read in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, he says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have, have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, speaking to God the Father, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then he says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me. In the scroll of the book. And again in Romans 3, Paul says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. 
Paul, Timothy, and the believers in Ephesus are aware of this understanding and definition of the law of Moses. And in Paul's first journeys to Ephesus, he would have taught the believers there the radical fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ, the God-man living a perfect life, and his final sacrifice once for all, never to be repeated. They would have known about the new covenant in Christ's blood that we learned about last month, when Christ gave his disciples the table of remembrance, the bread and the wine that we call communion, the reminder of his blood that was broken, his, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, and the beginning of the new covenant that promises salvation and peace with God who, to all who come to Christ through faith alone. In John chapter 3, we read, beginning in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, that the world, that in, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Not only are we forgiven, saved from the wrath to come and declared righteous through Christ as we've seen here. He has also given every single believer the Holy Spirit to indwell us and change us from the inside out, giving us even the ability to love God's way. Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given with all these glorious truths to cling to, with the understanding of the inability of the law to save or change us, 
and the understanding of the precious new covenant in Christ's blood, why would some start teaching the necessity of going back and following the Old Testament legal system? Why try to drag people back and place them under the old? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 and 6, we see the answer. Paul says that these men who want to return to the law have abandoned the stewardship or the good ordered truth given by God. The good news of the new covenant of faith alone in Christ alone. As the Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel, for from his, speaking of Christ, for from Christ's fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. And as Jesus says, as it recorded in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then later in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be here we have plainly seen that grace and truth has come through Jesus. Jesus says if we love him, we will keep his commandments, and he will give us the Holy Spirit as our helper. We look to Jesus, what he has accomplished for us, and out of love we follow him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul contrasts the goal of what the apostles have been teaching these believers with that of the teachers of the law. Verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. He's saying this is what is at stake. Love is at stake. The love that the Ephesians had for God and for one another. The love that you have for your Savior who bought you with his blood. The love you have for the people sitting next to you. The blood-bought people of God. Paul says the reason our love is at stake is because, because love begins with sincere faith. <laughs> faith in Christ alone to save you. We love him because he first loved us and we are clinging to him alone. Love flows from a good conscience, knowing that I am at peace with God because of Christ's righteous life lived for me. I don't have a good conscience because I've never messed up. A good conscience flows out of following Christ, trusting all the while in his righteousness. His goodness. And love issues from a pure heart, a heart transformed and made new by the Holy Spirit, a heart that hates evil and desires what is good. In verse 6, 
it says that certain persons in the church, these teachers of the law, had swerved from these. They had drifted away from this pure and good teaching, from this faith in Christ alone, and had wandered away into vain discussion. They had left the path of truth and gotten lost in the woods, spending their days in vanity, looking for some new secret knowledge rather than staying true to the stewardship, the good order truth that was once for all delivered to them. The aim of their charge, of their teaching, was not love that issued out of faith in the finished work of Christ. Instead, they were burdening and confusing the Ephesian believers by making of first importance, of eternal importance, things that were pure speculation, not required of believers anymore, or simply false. In the first century church, law-keeping looked like this. If you go through the New Testament, you can see it in almost every book and letter in the New Testament. It says that they were commanding circumcision, the cutting of a body to mark you as part of God's family, keeping of certain holy days, and not eating foods. Certain foods, you just have a list of them. Don't touch this, don't eat this, as a way to God. But what are some modern forms of law-keeping? I know there are some groups here, even in George, who are still keeping Old Testament laws as a way to God. I know that's a thing. But for us, what are some modern forms of law-keeping that might attach itself as a way of earning favor with God, of earning a relationship for the sake of time I'm just going to give one making laws about clothing has been very popular and I'm not talking about modesty in some religious settings I would not be allowed to stand behind the pulpit and preach the Word of God unless I was wearing the right material of pants and a jacket that has padding in the shoulders, and a piece of silk roughly six centimeters wide and 150 centimeters long, tightened way too tightly around my neck into a knot that oddly resembles a hangman's noose. <laughs> there is certainly Nothing inherently wrong with the society inventing formal styles of dress. There's nothing. <laughs> but there is everything wrong with the church making up, inventing extra-biblical laws, and then elevating those laws to the level of gospel truth or, in my example, faithful ministry and service to God. The list of examples could go on and on. But the point is this. We are not called by God to robotically follow a list of rules. God chose us. God called us. God saved us. 
so that we could be a people in love with the Savior, who wake up every day seeking to grow closer to Him and glorify Him in our lives. Out of love, putting to death our old, wicked ways. And out of love, following closely behind. In verse 7, Paul says, These men who teach adherence to the law as a way to God do not even understand what they are saying, making confident assertions or declarations about pure error. Church, there are so many men and women today who claim to be teachers of the truth. They may be attractive and dynamic. They may have white teeth, a great smile, poofy hair, and a bodybuilder's physique that they show off on stage. They may be the most passionate person you have ever heard speak. Their truth may sound so good to your ears and make you feel so good about yourself. But if they bring any other gospel than the one that was once delivered for all the saints, reject it, flee from it. Paul says your love for God and your love for his people are extinct. This raises the question, how can a Christian know the true gospel? How can you know what is right? How can you know what, what was truly delivered to us by the Holy Spirit through his apostles and prophets? The answer is that you must be intimately aware of what is written in the Word of God. The scriptures are the revelation of God to man, the revelation of his plan, his way. If you are not consuming these words and focusing your attention on these words from God, then you will always be vulnerable to the loud and assertive voices of false teachers. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16 says that God has given the church, the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Pastor teachers are God's gift to the church. They are one of to lead, to direct, and guide the church in their pursuit of the truth found in Christ. But a pastor teacher is only leading the church rightly as far as he is faithfully pointing them back to the truth that was once for all delivered to us through the writing of the apostles and prophets that was given to them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A pastor teacher is only faithful as long as he is faithfully stewarding the truth as revealed in Scripture. A pastor teacher is unfaithful the moment he adds to, takes away from, 
changes, makes more palatable or avoids the words of God. Pastor teachers are not inventors of new things. They are faithful stewards of something that does not belong to them, does not come from them. They are stewards of something that belongs to the God of heaven, the very words of God. But the question must also be asked, do you have this type of respect the words of God. Are you a faithful steward of the words of God in your own life, in your conversations with others, in your witness to the lost? <coughs> As you read the words of God and hear the words of God, do you bow the knee to it? Do you align your thoughts to God's word? Or do you make confident assertions about things you aren't really sure about? Maybe concepts you're exploring, what might feel right on the inside, or simply a concept you might have heard someone else speak confidently. As we read in Ephesians 4, our hope and desire is that each one of us is growing into mature manhood or womanhood. That we no longer be spiritual children who only have a small idea of the truth. That you would no longer be tossed about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. But instead that each one of us diligently study and know the truth and speak it in love, thereby encouraging one another as we grow in Christ. In verses 8 through 11, Paul reminds us of the truth, the truth of how the Christian should understand the Old Testament law in light of Jesus Christ and the new covenant in his blood. He says, beginning in verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul has covered this topic of law and depth um, in, in his letters to Romans, to the Romans and Galatians. But here he gives a very short and to the point summation. Verse 8 says, The law is good. The law of Moses is good. It was given by God as a good gift to Israel to set them apart and restrain lawlessness and to give them a glimpse of what it would look like to live at peace with God. But because of man's own sinfulness, what was good, the law, became a curse to them. Because man in his sin cannot follow the law of God. In the end, the law became a very long list of ways that mankind had failed to meet God in his standard. Verse 9 says, The law 
is not laid down or given for the just. The law is not for those who already love God, who cling to Christ in faith. Instead, the law is for those who are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. The law is given for those who do not love God, for those who in their hearts and through their lives are in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ. These men and women do not repent and believe the gospel. There is not evidence in their lives of a love for what God loves and a hatred for what God hates. They are literally out of control. They disrespect and slap their fathers and mothers across the face. They murder. They give themselves over to their ungodly sexual desires, which is a way of describing any sexual expression outside of the God-given marriage covenant between one man and one woman. They kidnap people and sell them for gold. They're liars, perjurers, those who disrupt justice with lies. And whatever else is contrary or standing in opposition to sound doctrine, the healthy, true teaching. Paul is not trying to give us an all-inclusive list of things we shouldn't do. Instead, he is giving us some examples of people who do not care about God and his way. The law is not for those who love God out of a sincere faith, good conscience, and pure heart. The law is for the lawless to restrain them and to show them that they stand guilty before a holy, righteous, and wrathful God. Paul concludes this thought with verse 11. He says that this sound doctrine, this healthy and true teaching that the apostles have delivered is in accordance with the gospel or good news of the glory of the blessed God which with, with he's been entrusted. Paul brings it back to the central focus of the gospel, which is the glory of God. Creation, the fall, the old covenant, the prophets, Christ coming into the world, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the church, your life, my life, the second coming of Christ from heaven, eternity, it's all part of proclaiming the glory of God. Amen. Glory means weightiness or value. And to glorify God, as one author put it, is to publicly put on display his infinite beauty and worth. The gospel is about the glory of God. And when we, by grace, through faith, admit our inability to reach God on our own through our attempts at law-keeping, and cling to the righteousness of Christ alone, finding ourselves changed from the inside out, not able to love him and follow him as a true disciple, then we put on public display the infinite beauty and worth of God. We glorify him in this life and then for all eternity. In this passage, Timothy is urged by Paul to guard the gospel against error. Specifically, the error of teaching the Old Testament law as binding on Christians. Someone might thoughtfully ask, then what should the Christian do with the Old Testament law? 
especially Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and the laws that specifically seem to address morality, that which has always been right and good. First, we will find God's moral standards repeated in the New Testament, similar to what we saw here in verses 9 through 10. But the emphasis is different. In the New Covenant, we are given a new heart and the Spirit of God so that we will love God and His way and hate the things that He hates. We have been changed on the inside, and a genuine Christian will not persist in sinning against God indefinitely. List-keeping is not the goal. Instead, all these other things flow out of love for God. Second, we must read, know, understand, and cherish the whole counsel of God. After all, how could you ever understand the wonderful nature of the new covenant if you completely ignore the old covenant? How can you truly understand the depravity of man if you didn't read the lengths to which God went in order to restrain it? Most of your New Testament would be a mystery to you if you didn't grasp what came before. We must read, know, understand, and cherish the whole counsel of God, all of the scriptures. Third, read the Old Testament law in order to know and understand more of God. Don't read it to look for lists of do's and don'ts. If you, are in, if you are a Christian, then you have died to the law and are alive to Christ. But instead, read the Old Testament law in order to grow in your love for God, our Savior. Being reminded that Christ has fulfilled all these on your behalf through his righteous life. And that he has already suffered the wrath of God for your every failure, setting you free to live. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is clear. And I thank you for your promise that it will never return void. That your words will accomplish their intended purpose. And I pray for everyone here that none of us would have a heart that is hardened to your words, to your way. Your words are life. You have given us hope, freedom, forgiveness, and peace with God Almighty through the good news of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you, Lord. Please open each and every one of our eyes to see. Give us palates to taste your goodness, your infinite beauty. Lord, may we leave today worshiping.